this was a week before we were going to close and I mistakenly missed a date. So I would remind everybody, watch your contracts, watch your terms and have good ways of keeping track ahead of time before you make that mistake like I did. As a loyal best ever listener, you know that it's important that we as entrepreneurs focus on managing our time effectively, which is why we're always looking for ways to automate the basic duties of our business so that we can focus more time on our money-making activities. That's why I want to introduce you to Rentler.com. At Rentler, landlords and property managers can perform all their duties in one place. Rentler offers tools that allow you to automate tasks like listing a unit for rent, finding and screening tenants, collecting rent, and managing the maintenance requests. And even better, these tools are offered at zero cost to you. Go to tryrentler.com forward slash best ever. That's T-R-Y-R-E-N-T-L-E-R.com forward slash best ever to get started today. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast. We only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of that fluffy stuff with us today. Evan Holiday. How you doing, Evan? Great, Joe. Thanks for having me here. Yeah, my pleasure. Nice to have you on the show. A little bit about Evan. He is a real estate developer and a real estate investor. He's developed over $100 million in new construction multifamily properties at LDG Development. Uses tax credits to create affordable and mixed income communities based in Louisville, Kentucky. So with that being said, Evan, you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and your current focus? Right. So I kind of jumped into real estate in college and always think about how can my story relate to others trying to get into real estate. And I think the way I was in college, I was looking at medical school and that just really wasn't for me. So I saw this $55 million student housing development with retail and everything going on the first floor. I was like, man, I need to be a part of that. Like something about that just gets me really excited. So I figured out who the developer was, who the owner was, And they're doing student housing properties all over the place. And I reached out to them through making many connections. And it was constantly, constantly reaching out to him. It wasn't like he just said, oh, yeah, sure, join the team. (laughs) It was constantly reaching out, barraging him with emails and calls. Uh, And then he actually told me, he's like, you should help us get a bunch of students to the groundbreaking. So I said, sure. So he thought I'd get maybe 100 people. And we ended up getting like 800 people out. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So that was a little help from my fraternity brothers. We were handing out pizza on campus trying to get the word out. But that kind of started it from there. I was the first hire at that development and learned the nuts and bolts of coming out of the ground, new construction. And then in college, started my own development company. We actually did modular housing development with mixed income, used a houseboat manufacturing plant in Kentucky. They have some of the biggest houseboat manufacturing plants in the world. So we took those skilled laborers who were out of a job with the housing market crash in 08, we're able to give them a job by making modular housing and turning that into apartments. So we took that and eventually built that out to a company and then won a few business plan competitions in college. And then from there found LDG. And really we were looking for partners that had money, had experience, had a balance sheet. And they actually reached out to me. They said, Hey, how about you do the same thing for us? So I've been with LDG about five years and have been sourcing and lining up funding, providing new developments, working with politicians. And so now my focus is just to rapidly, exponentially expand what we're doing and trying to do larger and better developments. So now we typically focus on 200 plus unit new construction developments 
in major metro growing areas. I've been working mainly in Nashville and New Orleans, surrounding areas, and that's been my niche and it's really worked out well for us. We recently named the number one affordable housing developer in the country, actually. Wow. I have so many questions. (laughs) Well, first off, incredibly impressive. Oh, let's see. We'll start from the beginning and just kind of work our way through. You were constantly reaching out to the developer and it took lots of phone calls. Right. When you were calling, what were you saying? My biggest thing was, how can I add value to you? How can I help you with this development? And I tried to stress what I was good at. I was good at connecting with people and I was good at using my network on campus and using the certain positions at clubs and whatever that I was involved in using those connections and those groups. And I tried to leverage that into a job. So he didn't bite on that right away, but that got me my foot in the door. That's why I always try to tell people, if you look up to somebody or you admire somebody or you see something that you want, go out and ask for it. That's how we got you on the Monumental podcast. I've made my way up to Cincinnati and introduced myself, and now here we are. Yeah, and really enjoyed that podcast. And real quick, the Monumental podcast, what is it so the best ever listeners are aware of what you're referring to? So about two months ago, started a podcast called Monumental, and we interview individuals like Joe Fairless, the one and only that are doing amazing things that are changing an industry and making massive change. So it's kind of all over the place as far as who we're talking to, but we want people that are being leaders in their field and other people can learn from and make their lives exponentially better. Now, going back to the groundbreaking, you said the developer was expecting 100. Heck, I was thinking 10 people. And then you said you brought 800 people. And that was through your campus connections and just a bunch of hustling. You said you got hired at the development. You were the first hire at the development. What were you doing? Honestly, I was doing a little bit of everything. So they had us starting to lease units out of a Holiday Inn two miles off campus. So I was doing lease up. I was preparing leases. I was preparing strategies for how to manage the property. And then on top of that, we were still going through construction. They leased it up prior to being complete. So I was going through taking videos, doing social media, the whole build out. I even had, interestingly enough, one of the things that I was proud of at the time was they had these lobbies with no windows in it. And I was like, you know what? That would just be a really boring lobby on every single floor going up five floors. And I was like, there's something we got to do about this. I told the owner. And so he ended up putting windows all over the lobby. And I'm like, man, that is awesome. That That is cool. That was my first little taste of having a little say in what goes into a development. I read the book of Sam Zell, Am I Being Too Subtle? Yeah, I love that book. Okay, good. So you've read it. And you'll probably remember when he mentions in the book that he hates development. And the only people who are in development 50% want to make money, but the other 50% get a lot of satisfaction in the end product. So would you be in that category where you want to make money, but then also half of it's also about just the satisfaction of doing it? Reading that book, I think that's such a valuable book. But yeah, I tend to agree with that. I think what got me into real estate was, especially with new construction, you can definitely do this with existing assets, but with new construction, you can literally change a neighborhood. 
you can forever change the path of a neighborhood and make it better and provide value for people already living there and also bring new people into a community. So I found that so powerful that happened in college with that development. And since then, I've been able to do many other developments that when we finish out our long-term development cycle, once we get at least up 100%, we're going into redeveloping parts of town and adding tremendous value. Like politicians will come up to us afterward and be like, thank you so much. You changed the direction. You were a catalyst for that neighborhood. So that's what got me into development. And since then, there's been a million other things that I've fallen in love with, but I think that's what got me here. In college, you started your own development company. See, we're working through the timeline, by the way. In college, you started your own development company. You employed workers from a houseboat manufacturing company instead because they didn't have jobs. You said, hey, since you don't have jobs and you used to do houseboat manufacturing, how about you create modular housing and we make that into apartments. Can you just elaborate more on that? Yeah, definitely. So the plans were called Houseboat to Energy Efficient Residence, HBEER. And we actually worked with University of Kentucky College of Architecture and Design. So the students, they had a class built around this. So we worked with them, took the plans that the students and professors both designed and brought those to the houseboat manufacturing plants. They lost 1,100 skilled workers with the housing market crash. Nobody's buying houseboats. So we were able to say, hey, look, here's plans that we use the exact same layout, the exterior shell layout of a houseboat. We just want to take that and stack it on top of each other like little Legos Mm -hmm. and do multifamily in more urban areas. We actually did do a few single family developments as kind of a test run. And then we were going into the multifamily and that's when LDG came and snatched me away. What happened to what you were working on with the modular housing after you left? I was kind of leading that charge. And after I left, it kind of fell apart, but it's always been on the shelf. Maybe Mm -hmm. it'll make a run at it again. I think modular is making a big turn in new construction as far as efficiency and costs. And I'm really excited about that to see where that goes. And I'd love to start implementing that into some of our new construction developments. Did any of that modular housing that was created during your time there end up as a community now? Not the multifamily, but there was a few single family units that we did in southeastern Kentucky that families that were less fortunate, not as much income, we were able to put them in. And another thing too, the way we designed it being modular was energy efficient. So Mm -hmm. we can lower their energy bills and get it built in seven days. They're still there now? Not the people, but the actual modular housing is. Yep, the housing and the people. Cool. Good. LDG Development, you mentioned you line up funding and you work with politicians and maybe you mix and mingle some of those. No, just kidding. So, So you do that for LDG Development. Why work for someone else as an employee versus find a partner who, as what you were seeking, had money, experience, and a balance sheet? I think that's a great question. And really, when anybody asks that, I always say is value that I got from learning from now one of the top ranked developer in the country for affordable housing, the value of knowledge and experience. It was almost like I was able to come in and started working there when I was 23. And coming in, learning They literally threw me in the deep end. They said, okay, go source developments, 
go find developments, find the funding, fly here, meet with these politicians, work with the architects, engineers, and get these things built. And they just said, do it. <laughs> so that for me was amazing experience. I couldn't have asked for a better way to just learn by being thrown into the trenches and also being able to not make the same mistakes that they made. I was able to learn from their millions of mistakes. And it, it's funny because we always have this conversation where they're like, man, I wish I was in your shoes, Evan, because I've made tens of millions of dollars in mistakes. Mm-hmm. And granted, they've made quite a bit of money too, but they've also made some big mistakes that have cost them significantly financially. So they've learned to never make those same mistakes again because it hurt them so badly. So they can pass it on to me. And that's where I've been able to learn so quickly and just catapulted where I'm at today, being able to do a hundred million in a little over a year closing deals. And then I think another hundred, 120 million in the pipeline to close this year. That's incredible. When they spoke to you, about some of those big mistakes that cost them tens of million dollars and they pass them on to you, what are some of those mistakes? I would say one of the overarching ones is know your niche. Know exactly what you're good at and double down on that. Because in many situations, we, especially as developers and real estate investors, we try to chase the shining object. And Mm -hmm. nine times out of 10, we'll get you in over your head. Or maybe it is a successful development or a successful investment, but in a way you you only have so much time to allocate towards your work. Mm -hmm. And if you spend all this time learning about some new field of development that maybe you're not the best at, so you need to spend way more time learning it and making sure you're making a good investment, that's time that you're taking away. So we always say, we're like, well, do we want to do this crazy over the top wild, extravagant project in an awesome location, this and that, but it's out of our wheelhouse. It's not what we do day to day. It's not our bread and butter. And we always say, well, like, look, that could take five years. And you think of the opportunity cost of how many deals you're missing out on that you know how to do, that you know how to close and that will be successful. So that's really been the biggest lesson because they did go out on a limb on a few projects and lost millions of dollars. So that's what we've harped on and doubled down on what we're good at. And since then, I think the ranking is kind of a external proof of that, that we are on the path to what we are very good at doing. For someone who's not familiar with using tax credits to create affordable and mixed income communities, what is that? Good question. I get that all the time. So tax credits are, in essence, we could go on for days about this, but The tax credits are programs set up by the federal government, set up in 1986 to basically incentivize banks to invest in lower income or disadvantaged parts of town that needed that kind of kickstart and were not seeing investment from the banks. And specifically, if your listeners know about redlining and banks back in the day would literally just mark off certain neighborhoods because they were said they were too poor. So this is a way to stop redlining and require banks to invest in these areas. So the banks get a CRA score to invest in lower income neighborhoods. So this is a way for them to up their score or maintain a good score Mm -hmm. by investing in tax credits. So we have a required market, almost like banks that are required to invest in these tax credits. So we always have a supply of buyers. 
And on the flip side, we're providing quality housing. It basically, the equity comes in as tax credits. We sell those tax credits to the banks who are the investors. And then that in turn is almost like our free equity source. And in turn, we're able to provide market rate style apartments or market rate style developments communities for a margin of the price of what a market rate community would be. And our residents are still making income and are still carry a job, still have to pass our background check and all this, but it just gives them a safe, quiet, comfortable, nice place to call home and raise a family without being stressed by spending 50 to 75% of their budget on, or their income on rent. So I'm sure your listeners know that's a big problem today in the United States So this tax credit program is trying to make a dent on that by providing good housing for working families that just can't pay the exorbitant rents that people are seeing today. You said the equity are the tax credits, and then you sell the tax credits to the bank, and that provides you with what you need in order to do the development, right? Correct. There's two different types of tax credits. There's competitive, non-competitive Competitive covers about 70% of the cost of development. And by the name, they are very competitive. Uh, They're very hard to get. So we have kind of taken out the guessing game and have strictly gone after the non-competitive. And they cover around 30 to 40% of the total development cost. So we're still getting a mortgage. We're still getting a loan. And then we're also putting in some form of equity ourselves. And then we're also sometimes you still, even with all that on the non-competitive side, we're still seeing five to ten percent that we have to fill from local help from the city, from the state, and they'll help put in a soft loan that's payable out of cash flow, something that won't hurt our loan sizing. So if the equity equals the tax credits and then you sell the tax credit to the bank, then the question is how do you get the tax credit in the first place? Each state has their own state housing agency and they are kind of the gatekeepers making sure that all affordable housing is done correctly upkept well, managed well. And that's also another person to oversee the property, make sure that they're safe, clean communities. They stay well for the long term, but they are the gatekeepers of the tax credits and you apply to them for competitive. It's all on a timed schedule, non-competitive. It's typically year round. And so we apply, make sure we're hitting their parameters, make sure we're hitting their goals. And then same thing at the city level and the county level as well. If they have funding that we're trying to go after, then we're making sure we're hitting their goals as well. Is there a person in your company that is strictly focused on the process of working with the states, the city, and the counties from a paperwork and regulatory standpoint? Yes. I am on the front end. I do the sales part of the job and the relationship part of the job, making sure that we're aligning with their goals. And then I have a team that helps me put together the applications, work through the paperwork. And then on the back end, once we have a tax credit award, and then once we've built the development, then we have an asset management team that makes sure throughout the property, we're staying in compliance and we're making sure everybody's happy. With the non-competitive where you all are receiving 30% of the total development costs, what type of check-ins Would it be the banks? You're selling the tax credit to them. Are they the ones checking in with you or is it the state that's checking in with you? 
it's honestly everybody. That's <laughs> that's why I think the program works so well is because you have the state agency that's looking over your shoulder. You have the equity investor through the bank, or sometimes they go through syndication groups. They're looking over your shoulder. You have the bank giving the perm loan. They're looking over your shoulder. You have the city or the county. If they gave any money, they're looking into the deal. So you have so many partners that are checking in on you constantly. And it depends city by city, state by state. Everybody does it differently, but they'll typically check in monthly during construction. And then they have some sort of stabilization process where you have to stabilize the loan, stabilize all the affordable units, verify that they're all qualifying as affordable tenants. And then from there, you do like a either a biannual or a three times a year, whatever it is per state, you do that to check in on the property, make sure it's all going well. Goodness gracious. And how long do you do this till? The checking in part. All right. Tax credit compliance period is 15 years. <laughs> so it is a long-term hold. Yes, so. it is. <laughs> and after that 15 years, if you were to sell it at the 15-year mark, could the buyer then not have any regulatory part in reporting and then just put those units at market rent? It used to be that way. The last five or so years, the states have come in and said 15 isn't long enough because of the benefits you're getting. We wanted to see some guarantee of affordable period up to 30 or 40 years, depending on the state. So the states have added that on. The federal requirement is 15 years. But obviously, because the federal rolls off at year 15, you're a little bit less stringent year 15 through 30 or whatever it is, but you still have that affordability requirement. And what is the actual affordability requirement? There's a couple different selections you can do, but probably the most often selected one is to get the tax credit, you have to have 40% of your units at 60% area median income. That basically means that each metropolitan area is given an average income. You take 60% of that and then multiply that out by 12 months and make sure that your residents are paying no more than 30% of their income every month on rent. So that calculation tells you how much you can charge for a two bed, a three bed, and how many family members you can fit in. Basically ranges per city, but it can range anywhere from typically the cities we're working in for a one bedroom can be anywhere from 750 to a three bed can be a thousand to 1200. So they're not like super cheap rents like most people think. It is still something that you have to have a job to be able to afford, but it gives people enough breathing room that they can actually pay for healthcare, pay for school. And you mentioned the affordability requirement. I thought you said there are two. Maybe I missed a second. I think there's three different requirements, but the main one is 40%. Of okay, that's the main one. AMI. Cool. Got it. What'd you call it? The, oh, AMI, area, medium income. Yep. Got it. Median income, right? Yep. You're basically an affordable developer, Joe. <laughs> this is way beyond my pay grade right now. I'm just taking notes and listening and trying to ask somewhat intelligent questions. All right. What is your best real estate investing advice ever? I would say learn from others constantly and learn from others that have done it before you. Well, that is exactly what I'm doing right now. So I am adhering to your advice. You want to do a best ever lightning round? Yeah, let's do it. All right. First, a quick word from our best ever partners. You looking for a one-stop landlording software that helps you create listings, find and screen tenants, and accept rental payments while managing maintenance requests? 
Oh, by the way, it's zero cost to you. Go to tryrentler.com forward slash best ever. That's T-R-Y-R-E-N-T-L-E-R.com forward slash best ever. Want to build wealth through real estate but tired of dealing with tenants, termites, and toilets? Check out the Note Investing Academy. They'll teach you how to invest in the mortgage instead of the property. With all the cash flow or appreciation you want and investing as actively or passively as you'd like. Use the code FAIRLESS at noteinvestingacademy.com for $500 off enrollment. Best ever book you've read? I would have to say right now I'm reading actually Crucial Conversations, which I think I heard you recommend. Absolutely. What to do when the stakes are high and opinions vary. Love that book. Best ever deal you've done? I would have to say the one we did in Nashville. We closed about two years ago and we did the first ever pilot payment in lieu of tax. We had to get state legislation changed to do it. It took <laughs> way longer than I ever... How long? took three years to get the financing in place. And we're just now wrapping up about two years after that on the construction. What was the legislation and what did you get it changed to? It was kind of odd. It was pilots, payment in lieu of tax. It's like a tax abatement are allowed throughout the whole state of Tennessee, except for a certain caveat that said that Nashville or city county governments greater than 500,000 people are not allowed to have pilots. Nashville's the only one in the state of Tennessee. So that's where our project was and that's where we needed a pilot and it couldn't get done without a pilot because of our restricted rents. So we were able to work with the mayor's office and get that done, but it took quite some time. What's a mistake you've made on a transaction? I would say making sure you're paying attention to all of the deal points and also making sure you're paying attention to contracts. I had first deal I ever did. It was a minor little one acre piece we had to add on to the site, went out of contract. This was a week before we were going to close and I mistakenly missed a date. So I would remind everybody, watch your contracts, watch your terms, and have good ways of keeping track ahead of time before you make that mistake like I did. Did you end up closing on that deal? We did. And actually, we got lucky. The seller, I think we were buying their house for like 60 grand to add an acre to our 10-acre site, and they gouged us up to 90. But it was like, man, they really had us by the balls and they just mm-hmm. didn't know it. Like they could have asked for whatever and we probably would have paid it. But what would you have paid? We probably would have paid close to two fifty to three hundred. Best ever way you like to give back. What I've done in the past is mentor high school or middle school kids. There's a program kind of similar to junior achievement, but in Louisville it's called a Young Entrepreneurs Academy. And we help mentor kids to start their own businesses and do business plan competitions and that's been such a blast. And I had one of the kids I mentored ended up going to the national competition. So that was really cool. How can the best ever listeners get in touch with you? My website is evanholiday.com. My podcast is monumental. You can hear Joe Fairless on there. And I think that's it. They hear enough of Joe Fairless. They want to hear other people. <laughs> Evan, thank you so much. Holy cow, this is a crash course for me and perhaps some of the best ever listeners on development, on tax credits, on just a refresher for how important resourcefulness is, reaching out to people. I mean, there are so many life lessons and very kind of 2.0 real estate lessons in here. It's insane. Thank you so much for being on the show. I'm not going to try to recap any. Just listen to the episode, everyone, again. And we transcribe the episodes usually about three or four days afterwards. So just visit the website, bestevershow.com. 
and you can read the transcription too. Thanks for being on the show. Hope you have a best ever day and we'll talk to you soon. I had a blast. Thank you, Joe. Want to build wealth through real estate but tired of dealing with tenants, termites, and toilets? Check out the Note Investing Academy. They'll teach you how to invest in the mortgage instead of the property. With all the cash flow or appreciation you want, and investing as actively or passively as you'd like. Use the code FAIRLESS at noteinvestingacademy.com for $500 off enrollment.